welcome to the Space Show, presented by members of the Space Association of Australia. Hello, I am Andrew Rennie. On this evening's The Space Show, John Glenn. 60 years since America's first orbital manned spaceflight. The first human in space was Russian Yuri Gagarin, who made one circuit of the Earth on 1961, April the 12th. The flight lasted 108 minutes. 23 days later, American Alan Shepard made a 15-minute suborbital flight, followed on July 21 by Gus Grissom, who did the same. Sixteen days later, the world was stunned when German Titov was launched from the Soviet Republic of Kazakhstan. He orbited the Earth 17 times in 25 hours. The United States public were baying for NASA to match the Soviet achievement. The seven Mercury astronauts were champing at the bit as NASA experimented with chimpanzees. One of these astronauts was 40-year-old John Glenn. Well, 50 years ago, on February the 20th, an Atlas T rocket roared into life and placed him into orbit. Ten months after Yuri Gagarin, America had a man in orbit. Now, Glenn a decorated Marine Corps pilot, had flown 59 combat missions in the Pacific in World War II and 63 missions in Korea. He had flown the first supersonic flight from the west to the east coast of the United States and appeared on television shows. The already well-known Glenn became famous when selected in 1959 as one of the seven Mercury astronauts. With his three orbits of the Earth aboard Mercury Atlas 6, Glenn became a national hero. This evening on The Space Show, we tell John Glenn's Mercury 6 story in song, documentary and oral history. In keeping with the Cold War mentality of the 1960s, Glenn's Mercury spacecraft was named Friendship 7. Well, Sonny Harris was from John Glenn's home state of Ohio and in 1962 sang about Friendship 7. Five, four, three, two, one. Around the world he went just for you and I Around the world he went just for you and I From New Concord came this heroic guy For three long years he practiced and he toiled for this For three long years he practiced and he toiled for this Seminars, he said, man, this is eternal bliss. 
January 27th and everything's go. Pops up above, say no, John, no. Five bars are waiting and no shot yet. Five bars are praying to make like a jet. Another delay to ride that Milky Way. Another day without light pay. Round the world he went just for you and I. From New Concord came this heroic guy. 20 a.m. and filet mignon. 6.03 capital lights on. 9.47 and it's up and away. 10 a.m. what's Russia gonna say? 10.25 and food tastes good. Now there's a kangaroo on John's hood. Around the world he went just for you and I. From New Concord came this heroic guy. And everything's manual 1254 second orbit annual 2.20 p.m. and rockets fire 2.28 and number three's on the wire 2.38 and a shoot up above John safe as a bug in a rug Hits that water, splash like a ton Here comes Noah, a dead on the run And it's home, a home, a back to the Cape A back to the Cape for kisses and cake Friendship 7 by Sonny Harris from 1962. Little Willie John also comes from the United States and he sang Mr. Glenn. And of course it's about the Mercury 6 flight by John Glenn. John Glenn reports zero G and I feel fine. He says the view is tremendous. Under current conditions, John Glenn in the Friendship 7 spacecraft is traveling at a velocity of 17,545 miles an hour and is in orbit. Tell me, Mr. Glenn, what did you see when you went up there? When they shot you in a rocket and zoomed you through the atmosphere? Is it true what they say of the star above? Did you see a pretty maiden from the Mr. Glenn, Mr. Glenn, what about the things you saw floating all around your ship? If they were pretty girls, won't you take me on your missile trip? On your very next trip, and I hope it's real soon, drop me off at Venus on your way to the moon, please, Mr. Glenn. Mr. Glenn, Mr. Glenn, 
Older listeners to this radio program may be familiar with the Evertone Flexi Discs. Uh, For example, they were sometimes given away with National Geographic magazine. They um, were first produced in 1962. So the recording going to play has to be one of the oldest in existence. So this is John Glenn's Day of History, taken off an Evertone Flexi Disc. Mercury Control, the MA6 launch countdown is T-minus one minute and counting. T-minus one minute and counting. All systems are reported in a go condition. John Glenn reports he is ready. Those words by Colonel John Powers at Cape Canaveral on February 20th, 1962, set in motion one of the most spectacular news events of the 20th century, the orbital flight of John Glenn, Lieutenant Colonel, United States Marine Corps. This is how it happened. Five, four, three, three, two, one, zero. Liftoff. The clock is operating. We're underway. The MA-6 vehicle has lifted off. Trajectory looks good. The MA-6 vehicle has not been on that. Altitude, 3,000 feet, speed better than 200 miles an hour. 25,000 feet, doing better than 700 miles an hour. Altitude, 75,000 feet, speed better than 2,500 miles an hour. The capsule was entering space. Altitude, 40 miles, traveling at 5,000 miles an hour. A few minutes later, Glenn was traveling at better than 17,000 miles an hour. His altitude, 100 miles above the Earth. The orbital flight had begun. Zico, zero G, and I feel fine. Capsule is turning around. Oh, that view is tremendous. And I could see the booster doing turnaround just a couple of hundred yards behind me. It was beautiful. Uh, Roger, seven, you have a go. At least seven orbits. Over Bermuda, down the Atlantic Missile Range, over Africa and the Indian Ocean, and into the night side of the Earth. Glenn talked to fellow astronaut Gordon Cooper as his space dash carried him over Australia. Roger, how you doing, Gordon? We're doing real fine up here. Everything is going very well. Very good, John. You sound good. That was good. Good day. Uh, that was about the shortest day I've ever run into. Time passes rapidly, huh? Yes, Okay, do you have any, uh, landmark, any other landmark uh, on your face tonight, huh? I do have uh, a light inside. 
off to my right, I can see a big pattern of light, apparently right on the coast. Uh, I can see a small line of the town and a very bright light just to the south of it. Over the Pacific, into the sunrise, and trouble. The capsule's attitude control system was not functioning properly. Glenn became the vital factor in the mission at this point. I'm going on fly-by-wire so I can control more accurately. Uh... It just started as I got to Wymus, and appears to be, uh, it drifts off in yaw, uh, to the right at about one degree per second. It will go over to an attitude of about 20 degrees, and hold at that, uh, and when it hits about a 20 degree point, it then goes into orientation mode, and comes back to zero, and it was cycling back and forth in that, uh, uh, mode. Uh, only really unusual thing so far beside ASCS trouble uh, were the little particles, luminous particles around the capsule, just thousands of them, uh, right at sunrise over the Pacific. Over. Well, Roger 7, we have all that. Uh, looks like you're in good shape. Remain on fly-by-wire for the moment. All right here, Friendship 7. Glenn stayed on fly-by-wire for the remaining two orbits. At the end of the second orbit, Glenn got a good look at Cape Canaveral from outer space. Roger, this Friendship 7 has the Cape in sight down there. It looks real fine from up here, as you know. Yes, Good show. Next transmission, Bermuda. Again over the Atlantic and Africa, and Glenn saw his third sunset. Nighttime over Australia, and the long ride over the vast Pacific and into another sunrise. As he approached the United States, plans to bring Friendship 7 out of orbit were set in motion. This is Mercury Control. Our California station has made contact with the Friendship 7 spacecraft. The retro-rocket firing sequence was initiated in the spacecraft. Retro-firing attitude was assumed, and the three retro-rockets have fired. John Glenn's comment was it felt like he was going to send him clear back to Hawaii. The retro-rockets have fired... The re-entry process will be initiated shortly. Near Corpus Christi, Texas, Glenn re-entered the atmosphere. He was still flying by wire. Radio contact was lost momentarily as Glenn went through the ionosphere. Then the words that his parachute had opened. Friendship 7 had made a safe landing in the Atlantic Ocean, not far from the destroyer Noah. Moments later... The reports from the USS Noah indicate the Friendship 7 spacecraft was picked up clear of the water at one minute after three, and finally sat down on the deck at four minutes after three this afternoon. John Glenn reports, my condition is excellent. Mission accomplished. In less than five hours, John Glenn had orbited the Earth three times. He had hurtled into three sunsets and three dawns. He had thrilled the world. But several days later, when he addressed the Congress in Washington, Glenn put his flight into historic perspective. Friendship 7, though, is just a beginning, a successful experiment. It is another plateau in our step-by-step -step program of increasingly ambitious flights. The earlier flights of Alan Shepard and Gus Grissom, who are over here, were stepping stones. Just stepping stones. Stepping stones to where? To infinity? 
And we'll hear more from uh, that speech to Congress a little later in the show. That was from an Evertone Flexi Disc issued in 1962. And uh, the one thing it didn't mention was the alarm they had when they had a signal that the landing airbags had deployed. The heat shield might have come loose. And so uh, John Glenn was uh, told to keep uh, the retro pack on during the re-entry. Well, all was well. The re- the landing bag had not deployed. The heat shield was safe. And uh, as you heard there, Glenn did make a safe re-entry. This is The Space Show. On FM, online and on TuneIn 24-7. This is 88.3 Southern FM. John Glenn was able to circle the Earth at 28,000 kilometres per hour. Well, speaking of John Glenn, that's our topic tonight, the 60th anniversary of the orbital flight by John Glenn, the first American to go into orbit, the third person to go into orbit. Well, here's a, a song from 1962. Peter Colombo comes from the United States, and uh, he has the song called... Mighty John Glenn. Well, the rocket was a rising that goes out ace. Everyone was hoping that he'd go into space. As he rose higher into the sky, the clouds opened up to let many millions of his fellow countrymen, President John Kennedy today watched and listened to the radio-TV coverage of Colonel Glenn's spaceflight. After seeing Colonel Glenn's parents on television, President Kennedy picked up the White House telephone and talked directly to astronaut Glenn, today's national hero, who had stepped on the deck of the destroyer Noah just minutes before. Uh, hello, sir. Colonel, we're really uh, proud of you, and uh, I must say you did a wonderful job. Thanks, Mr. President. Well, we're glad you get down in uh, very good shape. I was just watching your father and mother on television. 
and they seemed in, uh, very happy. Well, it was a wonderful trip. It's almost unbelievable to think back on it right now, but it was really tremendous. Well, we're going to, uh, uh, we'll see you over at, uh, I'm going to come down to Canaveral on Friday, and then I uh, hope you come up to Washington on Monday or Tuesday, and I look forward to seeing you there. Well, fine, I'll certainly look forward to it. In 2013, John Glenn recorded an oral history uh, for the Ohio folks. And uh, he, in it, he described his early life, his war experiences. And then he got on to describing the early United States space program and the Mercury astronauts. The, I think people forget some of the impetus of the space program back in those days. Uh, the Soviets at that time were uh, claiming technical superiority. They, they were trying to appeal to third world nations to be direct their efforts toward communism, be cooperative with the communism, and spread this all over the world. And to do this, they were claiming technical superiority to the United States. And... Uh, they were saying that their research was better and that their technology was better and that uh, they, they were the wave of the future, in other words. And they were, they were uh, as an example of this, they were saying their spacecraft were going off successfully while ours were too often blowing up on the launch pad. And they were using some of those things to uh, entice students in from all over the world. They were giving education in the Soviet Union, sending them back out to their countries again. And uh, so this was in the... The space program really had its, the competition had its main impetus in the, the Cold War. And so we felt that and we knew that. And uh, so when this, uh, when this came up, it was not only that uh, we felt that we had reached a stage technically and scientifically where we could get up above the Earth's atmosphere and start doing research in that area, but it also was a matter of, of uh, recouping our position as the world leader in technology and research, which we knew we had anyway, and uh, show the rest of the world that. And, and in this, to that end, uh, in the early days of the space program, President Eisenhower wanted our program to be open for the whole world, his everlasting credit. The Soviets had their program as very tight, uh, very, uh, very secret. And uh, so our program was open right from the, the word go. And... Uh, uh, on my orbital flight in, uh, in 1962, uh, we had several thousand international press uh, came to, the, to Cape Canaveral. And, uh, and they were there to cover this. And you never saw anything like that going on in the Soviet Union. So we, we felt this as a, uh, while well, I saw it in, in, I saw it in that light, of course, but also saw it in the light of we had finally uh, reached a point where we could travel above the above space, and we can now do research uh, in these new areas above the Earth's atmosphere. So it had that dual attraction to it, and it, with what I'd been doing in test flying and working out problems on new things, it was a natural uh, step forward to go into something like this. It was really brand new, and the uh, the original selection program was started in. Uh, uh, NASA, well, NASA set the, the criteria for the type of people that they wanted. Uh, you had to be under 5'11", and I make it by about a quarter of an inch. I just barely make it. Uh, but that, that was because uh, a taller person than that probably was not going to fit into the type spacecraft they had planned at that time. 
And so you had to have that, you have a college degree, uh, you uh, had to have at least a thousand hours of, of jet time, uh, be a military test pilot. And uh, so all of these are, are things that, uh, that uh, they went through all the, well, to begin with, there have been some suggestions that maybe we should go with deep sea divers or daredevils or, or miners or parachutists or, or people who were, uh, had done sort of daredevil type uh, activity. But I think once again, it was President Eisenhower that decided that we would use military test pilots. They were accustomed to the highest speeds we could travel in small cockpits and confined areas. And uh, so uh, I think there were 300 and some people when they looked at the records, uh, 300 and some people that came out with the basic qualifications. And then I applied and there were a uh, hundred and some were weaned out of this. And then there were, I think 32 were put through all the final tests of uh, physical and, and uh, that met all the criteria NASA wanted and, uh, and qualified physically and during all the psychological tests that they gave us also. So it was out of that then that we were doing those selection programs were going on during the last part of 1958. And then we were announced as the, uh, the first seven of us that were picked for that, uh, the Mercury astronauts uh, were announced in April of uh, 1959. I applied, well, one of the people from NASA uh, called me to give me the word and uh, that I'd been selected. And I was very happy about that. It was gonna be a whole new experience and new area and it was like, it was, uh, I viewed it as almost though that we were going to be in on the ground floor of almost starting our, starting a new service. It's like you're the first person to form a new army or a new Navy or a new Marine Corps or Air Force. Uh, we, here we're going into space and we were going to be the first ones to be able to do this. And there were lots of questions about it and about the, you know, our, our missiles at that time are, we were using converted military missiles, rockets, to put us up there, going to. And the Atlas had had, uh, had not had a very good record in its early testing days, and there uh, been a number of failures. And so uh, uh, I remember the uh, Bob Gilruth, who was director of the program at that time, the first meeting we had with him, he said we'd been selected, we were all experienced military test pilots, and that if he, uh, uh, out of our own experience, if at any time, we wanted to see some additional tests run before uh, we were going to fly or or we got unhappy with the program and felt that we did not want to be part of it. We could go back to our original service and uh, no questions asked. And of course, nobody ever went back, but uh, there was that, uh, you, were, you were free to make your own decision on whether you wanted to continue with it or not. And all of us did continue and, and then uh, uh, filled in different different flight uh, activities in. The, uh, I might add that uh, as we're filming this today, yesterday was the, my anniversary, uh, 51st anniversary of that. It, it's hard for me to believe that it's been that long ago because it remains so vivid to me, but it's but, uh, been 51 years since I actually went on, uh, on Friendship 7 on the first orbital flight. What was your earliest memory of being an astronaut? Well, when I was growing up, there wasn't any such word. They hadn't invented the word yet, let alone the job. And uh, I think there were some of these boys' books and things like that that had, had uh, talked about people flying away from Earth and all that, but there, nobody really thought it would happen.
and it was a, a uh, uh, it was so new that we were we were just plowing new ground. Nobody knew what it was going to be like at that time. Uh, you could predict that some of the things that might happen as you go into weightlessness, as your weightlessness maybe is not a good word for it because what it is is more of a balance. You're going around the earth so fast that your centrifugal force just perfectly balances the pull of gravity. And if you alter that a little bit, if you alter that speed, if you speed up a little bit, uh, you'll go into a higher orbit. If you slow down a little bit, you'll come into a, a lower orbit and and that's how you re-enter the atmosphere and come back to Earth. You slow down a little bit and as you come down closer to Earth then, while you get into the air and that slows you down and down you come. So it's a, it's a whole new experience and, and uh, the questions were open then uh, before some of those early flights. Uh, there were some pretty basic things that some of the doctors and engineers were concerned about. Uh, the ophthalmologists were concerned about whether your eye would change shape when you're uh, in uh, in orbit for a number of hours at, at uh, zero G. Uh, when your eye no longer needs to be supported by the structure under it, and your eye is a little more gooey and, and uh, shapeable, I guess, than the rest of your body, would that change shape and would that be enough of a change that you would, wouldn't would be able to see the instrument panel clearly enough to make an emergency re-entry, for instance. And there were, there were serious meetings about that. And we actually put a, uh, my spacecraft and that first flight is on uh, uh, display in Washington at the Air and Space Museum. And they, we even put a little vision chart up on the, uh, up on the uh, top of the instrument panel with different size letters on it. And I was to read that every 20 minutes. Uh, to see whether my eyes were changing shape, things like that that we were trying to determine. Speaking in 2013 as part of the Ohio Oral History Project, that was John Glenn, the first American to go into orbit around the Earth. Well, 1962, Robert Parker, an American singer, had uh, this song about twisting in outer space. Remember Chucky Checker and the twist? Yay. Let's hear them. Way up in orbit, they heard a man say, John Glenn is heading out of the way. Friendship 7 is on track number 5. I want to be twisting when John passed by. They did the twist. Way out of space. 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 Venus gave a twist and caught it. Way out of space. She invited Pluto to twist the night away. Pluto invited Mars Mars invited Neptune Neptune invited Jupiter And Jupiter invited the moon They did the twist Way out of space 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 Way up there they had a jubilee The jockey folks they had a jamboree they were drinking cider from a old tin cup. They felt so good, they got all shook up. They did the twist. Way out of space. They did the twist. Way out of space. They did the twist. 
man say John Glenn is heading all the way Friendship 7 is on track number 5 I wanna be twisting when John passed by They did the twist Way out of space They did the twist Way out of space They did the twist Way out of space They did the twist Ah, those were the days when new dance crazes were invented. The twist. Robert Parker, <laughs> twisting in outer space. Well, this is The Space Show. 88.3 Southern FM, the sounds of the Bayside. Where you are listening to The Space Show, which is celebrating 60 years since John Glenn's triple orbit around the Earth. Now, I did promise you that uh, we would hear John Glenn speaking to Congress. I have slightly edited the speech, but it's uh, 98% of it is right here. Mr. Speaker, Mr. President, members of the Congress, I am only too aware of the tremendous honor that's being shown us at this joint meeting of the Congress today. When I think of past meetings that involved heads of state and equally notable persons, I can only say that I am most humble to know that you consider our efforts to even be in the same class. This has been a great experience for all of us on the program and and for all Americans, I guess, too. The flight of Friendship 7 on the 20th of February certainly involved more than one man just in a spacecraft in orbit. I can think of many people that were involved in this, but I can think of none more than just a few sitting in the front row right up here. My son and daughter, Dave and Lynn. And the real rock in our family, my wife, Annie. I'm real proud of her. There are many more people, of course, involved in and our our flight in Friendship 7. Many more things involved, too, as well as the people. There was the vision, of course, of Congress that established this national program of space exploration. Beyond that, many thousands of people were involved. Civilian contractors and subcontractors in many different fields, many elements, civilian, civil service, and military, all blending their efforts toward a common goal. To even attempt to give proper credit to all the individuals on this team effort would be impossible. But let me say that I have never seen a more sincere, dedicated, and hardworking group of people in my life. From the original vision of the Congress to consummation of this orbital flight has been just over three years. This in itself states eloquently the case for the hard work and devotion of the entire Mercury team. This has not been just another job to those of us on the project. It's been a dedicated labor such as I have not seen before. It has involved a cross-cut of American endeavor with many different disciplines cooperating toward a common objective. Friendship 7, though, is just a beginning a successful experiment. It is another plateau in our step-by-step program of increasingly ambitious flights. 
the earlier flights of Alan Shepard and Gus Grissom, who are over here. Their efforts were stepping stones toward my flight in Friendship 7, and my flight in that spacecraft will in turn provide additional information for use in striving toward future flights that some of the other gentlemen you see here will take part in. This is Scott Carpenter here, who was my backup on this flight, Wally Shira next to him, and Deke Slayton, and our one missing member who is still on his way back from Australia where he was on the tracking station, Gordon Cooper. A lot of direction is necessary for a project such as this, and the director of Project Mercury since its inception has been Dr. Robert Gilruth, who certainly deserves a hand here. Bob. I had planned to introduce uh, Walt Williams. I don't see him right here. I don't... There he is, up in the corner. As well as being associate director of Project Mercury, Walt has the unenviable position of being the operations director. And he's the character, no matter how you look at him, who says, hold the count occasionally and uh, for weather and one thing and another. <laughs> well, with all the experience we have had so far, where does this leave us? We have, I guess, these are the building blocks of one which we shall build much more ambitious and more productive portions of the program. As was to be expected, not everything worked perfectly on my flight. We may well need to make changes, but these will be tried out on subsequent three-orbit flights later this year to be followed by 18-orbit, 24-hour missions. Beyond that, we look forward at the moment to Project Gemini a two-man orbital vehicle with greatly increased capability for advanced experiments. There will be additional rendezvous experiments in space, technical and scientific observations, then Apollo orbital, circumlunar, and finally lunar landing flights. What did we learn from Friendship 7 flight that will help us attain these objectives? Some specific items have already been covered briefly in the news reports. And I think it is of more than passing interest to all of us that information attained from these flights is readily available to all nations of the world. The launch itself was conducted openly and with the news media representatives from around the world in attendance. Complete information on our project is released as it is evaluated and validated. This is certainly in sharp contrast with similar programs conducted elsewhere in the world and elevates the peaceful intent of our program. Data from the Friendship 7 flight are still being analyzed. Certainly much more information will be added to our storehouse of knowledge. But these things we know, the Mercury spacecraft and systems design concepts are sound and have now been verified during manned flight in space. We also proved that man can operate intelligently in space and can adapt rapidly to this new environment. Zero-G, or weightlessness, at least for this period of time that we're talking about, appears to be no problem. As a matter of fact, lack of gravity is a rather fascinating thing. Uh, objects in the cockpit can be parked in mid-air, for instance. Uh, 
For example, at one time during the flight, I was using a small handheld camera. Another system needed attention at that particular moment as I started to take a picture, so it seemed quite natural, and I had adapted to this rapidly enough that it seemed quite rap uh, quite natural to park the camera here in the air, go ahead and do what I wanted, and then take up the camera again and go on about the business. It's, it's a real fascinating field, needless to say. There seemed to be little sensation of speed, although the craft was traveling at about five miles per second, a speed that I, too, find very difficult to comprehend. In addition to closely monitoring onboard systems, we were able to make numerous outside observations. The view from that altitude defies description. I had listened earlier to Al and Gus both describe this and was eagerly looking forward to it, and in their wildest use of adjectives, they didn't describe what it's like even, nor can I describe it. The horizon colors are brilliant, and the sunsets are very spectacular. And it's hard to be today in which you're permitted the luxury of seeing four sunsets. <laughs> I think after all of our talk about space, though, so this morning coming up from Florida on the plane with President Kennedy, we had the opportunity to meet Mrs. Kennedy and Caroline before we took off. I think Caroline really cut us down to size and put us back in our proper position, though, when after being introduced, she looked up and said, Where's the monkey? <laughs> All this, and I didn't get a banana pellet on the whole ride. <laughs> Seriously, though, I feel we're on the brink of an area of expansion of knowledge about ourselves and our surroundings that is beyond description or comprehension at this time. Our efforts today and what we've done so far are but small building blocks on a very huge pyramid to come. Questions are sometimes raised regarding the immediate payoffs from our efforts. What benefits are we gaining from the money spent? Well, the real benefits we probably cannot even detail. They're probably not even known to man today. But exploration and the pursuit of knowledge have always paid dividends in the long run, usually far greater than anything expected at the outset. Experimenters with common gray mold little dreamed of the effect their discovery of penicillin would have. The story has been told of Disraeli, prime minister of England at the time, visiting the laboratory of Faraday, one of the early experimenters with basic electrical principles. After viewing various demonstrations of electrical phenomena, Disraeli asked, but of what possible use is it? And Faraday replied, Mr. Prime Minister, what good is a baby? That is the stage of development in our program today, in its infancy. And it indicates a much broader potential impact, of course, than even the discovery of electricity did. We are just probing the surface of the greatest advancements in man's knowledge of his surroundings that has ever been made, I feel. There are benefits to science across the board. Any major effort such as this results in research by so many different specialties that it's hard to even envision the benefits that will accrue in many fields. Knowledge begets knowledge. 
The more I see, the more impressed I am, not with how much we know, but with how tremendous the areas are that are as yet unexplored. Exploration, knowledge, and achievement are good only insofar as we apply them to our future actions. Progress never stops. We're now on the verge of a new era, I feel. Today, I know that I seem to be standing alone on this great platform, just as I seem to be alone in the cockpit of the Friendship 7 spacecraft. But I'm not. There were with me then and with me now thousands of Americans and many hundreds of citizens of many countries around the world who contributed to this truly international undertaking voluntarily and in a spirit of cooperation and understanding. On behalf of all those people, I would like to express my and their heartfelt thanks for the honors you have bestowed upon us here today. We are all proud to have been privileged to be part of this effort, to represent our country as we have. As our knowledge of this universe in which we live increases, may God grant us the wisdom and guidance to use it wisely. Thank you. That was John Glenn addressing the um, Joint Houses of Congress in 1962, just days after his three orbits around the Earth. Well, in 1998, John Glenn, at the age of 77, made a second space flight, this time aboard the Space Shuttle Discovery. In just under nine days, he orbited the Earth 135 times. Well, that event has been celebrated by the Italian group, the Wimshurst Machine. And uh, this uh, particular track is called Discovery, John Glenn's Adventure. And Houston, we have the runway in sight. Roger, runway in sight. Discovery, no action on the leak message. Copy, no action. concluding a journey of 3.6 million miles and a moment in history.
Our heartfelt thanks and appreciation and to all the NASA team from top to bottom and bottom to top, bottom to top. Looking back from up on high The arrow streaks into the blue A miracle once more to view Well, I've got lots more about John Glenn, so why don't we um, do a little bit more next week on The Space Show? Well, I think it's just about time for us to sign off here on The Space Show. 